You are entering The Take Up, a place to gather after the film is over. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, and I'm here with my co-host and the managing editor of thetakeup.com, Andrew Wyatt. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Today, we are processing Claire Denis' Stars at Noon, my pick for the Gens of 2022 program. First, we're going to talk about The Take Up and what that is. And we are joined by your favorite former Lens co-host, Kayla McCullough. Hi, Kayla. Hi. And then after Stars at Noon, we're talking Oscar nominations. And then finally, we'll have one more thing. Uh, Kayla, you've been on a little hiatus, but very busy. Should we talk about it? Why are we the take up? What's happened? What's going on, guys? Who wants to take this up? <laughs> Do not cut that out. <laughs> well, Andrew, uh, you're the managing editor of yeah, thetakeup.com. I, I guess I should pick up the ball here. So Josh, Kayla, and I, we've been um, writing together, collaborating together for Cinema St. Louis's in-house blog, The Lens, for a few years now. I wrote for them for about five years, and I think you guys kind of sort of progressively came on board the following years, one, two. So I think we've been at minimum writing together for about three years now. We kind of talked about potentially branching out and doing our own thing a little more independent from the Cinema St. Louis nonprofit while also maintaining some some kind of relationship with them. And thus the uh, take up was born because there's nothing the world needs more right now. And there's nothing more profitable and enterprising than a independent (laughs) journalism site. But we are kind of approaching this from a slightly different model than any of us have really done before. And also that's a little bit different than a lot of what's out there, which is a sort of creator owned platform for independent criticism. So sort of the appeal that we saw is the idea that us individually, and then any potential guest contributors or regular contributors we want to bring on over time would still own their content. They would hold the copyright on that content rather than the site owning the copyright on the content. Uh, which I think is going to be appealing for a lot of um, younger writers, people still trying to make make a name for themselves in the world of criticism. And I think branching out on our own also might give us some opportunities to stretch a little bit more in terms of the type of content and the type of writing and the type of uh, media that we involve ourselves with, and just a heck of a lot more flexibility, um, I think. But we get a good run at under the umbrella of Cinema St. Louis proper, the former executive director, Cliff Freilich, was very generous in the first place to bring me on originally back in 2017 to start writing sort of over here, a little, have a little editorial side project adjacent to the, to the more festival-oriented duties of the organization. But we kind of felt like five years is a good run. It's a good, it's a good, it's a good nice, clean round number to, to create a break and have a new phase. Yeah, and we're still in the Cinema St. Louis family for all intents and purposes, but it's like the kids are going to college. (laughs) They're going to go figure out life on their own. I have a a feeling you're still going to see us around uh, introing and doing events for them and maybe jurying and so forth. So we're not going to go anywhere, but um, we kind of wanted to have our own our own brand, our own uh, our own home, so to speak. And, you know, uh, I personally am still working as a programmer for them. So, I'm, I, you know, we're, we're still there and they're still a part of us. And I think it's a really great venture for everyone because we will be able to expand not only the, the, the sorts of content 
that uh, we do upon what we do now, but it's sort of housed in one spot. Even logistically, I think it's a great thing for us. You know, being the blog on a, a film festival's website has its advantages and disadvantages. But here, you know, the, uh, there was a friend of ours and uh, past and future guest, Kate Lore, had uh, said, hey, I, I had a difficult time finding your note review and I wanted to read it. I wish you guys had a search bar. She said this the other day. And I was like, I just sent her two little uh, devil emojis. She's <laughs> like, wait five days. <laughs> we'll have a search bar. We'll have various ways of finding all the different content. I don't know. I'm I'm super excited. So this episode's going to be posted the day that we're launching the takeup.com. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, that is the take-up.com. Kayla, I've had a question posed of me by the few people who were aware of the takeup. They said, I like that name, but I don't quite understand it. What's the take up? Why the take up? Okay, so I don't know. I'm probably not the best to be explaining this. You don't have to technical term it. Okay, basically in a film projector, the part that takes up the film. Yeah. And um, yeah, have we, uh, what? Why is this symbolic? Why did we choose this name? Yeah, that's the I'm that's the question, right? Is like flip it the has tables a... and ask you guys the questions. I think Josh was the one who who like originated the term, right? We were well, picking out the baskets of terms. I think you were the one who threw it out. We were thinking it would be neat for continuity if we stayed sort of in the realm of equipment, but equipment as like a metaphor. And this one's interesting because the, the lens is at the front. So if you're talking about a projector, the lens is a thing that allows you, the audience, to see the thing. The take-up is interesting because on a two-reel projector system, it's the second one. So it's after the shit's already gone through it. And as critics, we have always valued subjective in criticism and our experiences and how they sort of inform criticism. So the take up is really about, Kayla put it in the best way, it is a place to gather when the film is over. I, I think one of our tenets in our manifesto is that subjectivity. And so not only was it just like, kind of punchy <laughs> it, it just seemed to like encapsulate our idea of, of why we were even doing this in the first place it's just all about processing the film and yes it's the same piece of film but it always enters the take up in a different way based upon which first film where you lay those sprockets on right so it's always going to be a little different I always think of that line from 12 monkeys about vertigo the film never changes it can't change because mm. it's a film but you change you right. see things differently each time so even within our like different people obviously experience things differently and that's the fun about having a group of critics discussing something or, or uh, picking something apart but even within your own views you, you know you can visit something and then come back later and 
feels differently about it. So that that I think gets at part of what we were we're going for here is that that subjectivity within intra and inter-experiential subjectivity. So we should talk about what it is. Is it different from the lens? Are we gonna have new content? Yes. <laughs> That's me <laughs> saying. What what should people look forward to on the takeout? Really? I mean, any and everything. I mean, I think we're going to continue to deliver what we were delivering at the lens in terms of types of content, but 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 also, you know, the improv. Mm-hmm. So we're going to, um, you're going to see the same sort of long form reviews that are sort of the, the bedrock of any good film criticism site, but also, you know, features and essays. Um, we've talked a little bit about branching out into different media and maybe mixing things up beyond the usual, just sort of there's 10 paragraphs about what I thought about this kind of format and trying different things out. I don't know if you guys, if you guys already have like plans brewing in the back of your head about things, specific things you want to do or not. I don't want to presume. There is one um, feature that uh, 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 we've brought on someone who's also interested in film. He's an illustrator, a lot more than that. Um, Musician, actor, great artist. His name is Chance Bone. He's out of Chicago, Illinois. And um, he's going to be doing a, a a regular feature with me about we both watch a film and interpret it in our ways that we interpret film in that he's going to do an illustration that I'll be doing a short piece. And um, first thing we're going to be doing is a series on women in film, 1971 specifically. I love the specificity of that. Yeah, because we were like, Ooh, let's let's do little little series, right? Because we really love, and this is something I always talk about. I love getting obsessed with something in film, like a hyper specific time actor. I mean, I'm still in my Hong Kong era, but we were talking about Karen Black and Easy Rider, and we were talking about her eyes. And I'm like, I think I could write a paragraph or two about Karen Black's eyes she has like one wonky eye but i think the crossing of it creates some sort of magnetic pull anyway that's spoilers take this as a call for submissions too if you have an idea or something that you think would fit within our vision and and you know you don't have an outlet and you you think uh you know you think you up to snuff mm-hmm. we've got um Andrew, what's the email? It's the takeupstl, one word, at gmail.com. And if you want to specifically email us about submissions, you want to give us a pitch or a whole completed work, then um, you can send it to thetakeup.submissions at gmail.com. And then to the point of subjectivity, something you already talked about is that anything we published is owned by the byline. So you'll yeah. still own it. Yep, It's yours, baby. We don't have a problem with people republishing things that have been published on the site. Um, as long as the site's credited, it's just credited as the original publication point. Basically, you own it and you can do what you want with it, which I think is a, I'm, I'm hoping will be a, an appealing point for uh, for writers, particularly young up and coming writers who want to get their work out there without necessarily doing a piddly little work for hire for a big media outlet. Absolutely. I mean, that's how... Kayla and I got our start with you. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about the names we didn't choose? Were there names we didn't choose? 
the uh, way we were all convinced that it was split diopter. Oh, split diopter. Yeah, that was. A I'm good like, one. no one knows how to like spell diopter. But anyway, it's the takeup.com. It is not split diopter. Um. So yeah, you can follow along at the takeup STL. And I think the STL part is important. We're going to get St. Louis film community involved. Some people who have uh, been on the podcast before or contributed to the lens before. You see some returning folks, some new things. And you can listen to our podcast on there too. Uh, with that, Andrew and I are going to go ahead and take up the stars at noon. <clears throat> stars at noon. No, the. All right. Kayla. Thank you for joining us. We'll have you on again soon. Yay. Okay, bye. Andrew, can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with the American expression, you've got your ass in a sling? <laughs> I've heard it. I don't think I've ever actually heard anybody use it like live in front of me. I feel like it's one of those things that movies and literature tell me as an expression, but I've never actually heard anybody. What's the, what's the phrase? My favorite one. The one you're, you're thinking so hard how to get out of here. Your head is smoking. Yeah. <laughs> Something along those you're lines. thinking so hard to how to get rid of me that your head is smoking. Um, and of course, I think somebody has said that to me, I'm sure at some point. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what I've, definitely been asked it's what are you doing here and then i've responded i thought i'd come here to measure the exact dimensions of hell <laughs> anyway we're talking about claire denise stars at noon what were you him? what are you moses i wanted to know the exact dimensions of hell so many dreams we share like the stars this is my pick for underrated gem of 2022 and and one of your like top 10 one of my top 10 yeah in fact uh if you haven't listened to the previous episode you can go back to hear the rest of our top 10s this is the one that we skipped over because we were about to cover it and I feel like we have talked about this movie a lot sort of here and there on the pod. Yeah, you could probably piece together our thoughts uh, about it, but we can, uh, we're going to go a little long on it here. And I think it's deserved. I, I don't, you know, don't want to start with this, but I was going through reviews because I'm like, why did this one sort of mess? And, you know, we've talked before about distribution these days and how it's just kind of uh, the wild west out there and people uh, people are trying things um one thing a24 is trying is like one week release then dump somewhere else and no marketing i wonder how that's working for them and acquiring a film like stars at noon like why are they doing that because that's what happened with this one and it's streaming on hulu but it's been there a week out from its release which to be fair it did play at Quite a few theaters here. I saw it on the big screen. Oh, you which did? was oh yeah, it was nice. It's quite a different experience to be trapped in it large. Yeah, I had to watch a screening link, unfortunately, but um oh. it made it made an impression on me. Yeah, like, even as I'm watching it, one of those movies where I maybe like I didn't necessarily think I was going to review it, and mm. I maybe was devoting about 75% of my attention to it. Yeah. Um, and then I'm just like 
after Oops. about 20 minutes, I'm like, whatever I was doing, I'm not doing anymore. I'm just watching this because Margaret Qualley has my attention. <laughs> so let's start there with this kind of spell that it weaves on you. That is just the nastiest thing. <laughs> so it's an adaptation and we'll get into the adaptation bit too of Dennis Johnson's 1986 novel, The Stars at Noon, which is set in 1984, right? So this is post or like during the Nicaraguan Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, this is when the right wing are fighting the left wing who have already overthrown the dictatorship. The details, come on. I, I, yeah, I'm not a historian. A little context is probably good for that. The the truly sad thing is about the, the history of Latin America is you could probably, the summary you just gave probably applies to a lot. Let me get the right wing dictatorship was probably CIA backed. <laughs> yes, it was. As were the right wing paramilitaries. There were human, right, human rights abuses all over the place. And that is a great point because the novel is sort of after our involvement in that and American involvement in that conflict sort of around the edges with the specificity. And this film is maybe probably set in contemporary times. And the details of all that that are in the novel are are there. So it has this sort of like time slippage. It's, It's not even so much like no time has passed. It's it's more like we're almost in some parallel universe version of Nicaragua. Sure. Or, you know, history pe- repeats itself over and over again. But all of all of the thematic material about American involvement in those affairs are are still present here. This is a very it's a Claire Denis film, so it is a little bit elliptical, but I would argue that it's probably a lot more plot her focused. Straightforward. Yeah. yeah, plot focused than a lot of her films. And like it's easy to parse what happens <laughs> to who to who in what order, like unlike some of her films that get a little bit more slippery. So j- just to summarize, we have this woman played by uh Margaret Qualley, who is is or maybe was is a better description, a journalist mm-hmm. who is in Managua, Nicaragua, the capital. I think we just get her name is Trish. I don't think we learn anything else about her identity, really. She sort of is or is in the process of becoming trapped in Nicaragua as events turn more and more decisively towards solidification of left-wing power over the government after the ousting of the right-wing dictatorship. She's getting nervous, like more and more Western expats in Nicaragua are sort of fleeing. You get the impression that she's sort of one of the last holdouts and she's basically been reduced to, I shouldn't say reduced, but she's she's been selling herself to sort of make ends meet because whatever money that she had coming from her editors for her work has sort of dried up as the work itself has dried up. And she's sort of been left blowing in the wind by uh, her editor. And I think it's fine the way you just framed that because sex work is important to uh, distinguish a, a choice of doing it. <laughs> but this is this isn't really her choice. This is the last thing that she has that she can do. Well, and we should say that this is that what I just described is sort of the setup, right? With the plot really begins in earnest when she meets this particular man, this British man named Daniel played by Joe Alwyn. And they sort of gravitate to each other or maybe, maybe slightly more her to him. And then 
later, maybe him more him to her in terms of here's a potential person who could maybe be a life raft or maybe also a romantic partner, not just somebody where the sex is transactional, maybe. Like that's sort of one of the, not to spoiler, but that's sort of one of the fundamental themes of the film is the idea of who are you and what do you value? I mean, this is very much mm-hmm. a character. This is very much a character piece. And the extent the film has a plot, it's basically Trish and Daniel sort of running to and fro, hiding out in hotels, moving on to different locations and sort of evading, but not really evading the Nicaraguan authorities, the Costa Rican secret police who are there, sort of there, the CIA who are also present. Yeah, they are trying to get out of Nicaragua by any means possible. But I also don't want to make it sound like it's this high octane like thriller about the escape. No. It is very much a purgatorial film is how I would describe it. Yes. Two people who feel trapped and are going in circles. And even as they're trapped and going in circles, the circles are getting tighter and tighter because they're being sort of hemmed in from all sides. And as it gets tighter is when they start to sort of try to spill out of it or escape from it, right? The, The idea of purgatory is really important to this because she's completely out of her element and out of place here. And, you know, the idea that her posing maybe as a journalist comes up in a cameo when John C. Riley shows up on a, on a Zoom call <laughs> and she's begging essentially him for money um, so that she can attempt to get to Costa Rica to do a piece. She's throwing everything at the wall to see if anything will stick. And this guy's, you have not been employed by me. You did temporary work. You helped with a piece. I don't want what you have. You're going to ask me for money and run with it like you did last time. He shuts her down so hard and almost laughing about it while he does it. Here's a thought. Fuck you. So um, that's the extent to which uh, John C. Riley's in this. It's pretty fun. So, you know, it gets at the idea of how do you identify when everything around you is you own nothing of it or you are not a part of anything of it. I love that she runs around with no shoes on all the time. It's just a, a like a little detail, but it shows this character like is so fucking scared that the only way she knows how to do it is treat it like she's above it. And also the things that become commodities and luxuries in her circumstances. Mm-hmm. You could argue that part of this is just sort of scene setting to give the idea of like, how restricted things are in sort of the aftermath of the coup and with the military still sort of being in control of things, things like shampoo become mm-hmm. like this luxury item that toilet, good toilet paper become these things that she's seeking out. But I do think it's, it isn't just scene setting to say, Oh, isn't life crappy under the military in the middle of a war zone. It's more about her and what she values moment to moment. Like the idea that she's living that close to the bone, that good toilet paper becomes this precious thing that she's willing to go out of her way to go to a good hotel and sneak out as many rolls as she possibly can to take back to her little hovel. After she's been denied a plate at the buffet. (laughs) And let me me tell you, of all the great like wordless acting in this film, and this film does have a lot of it, I really kind of love the very relatable... I'm just going to pretend I'm a guest here and maybe sneak some of this awesome cantaloupe on this breakfast buffet. Like, 
there's just something very very naturalistic the way the, yeah, the but way the she way the it. employee approaches her and like points at the sign and says this is for guests <laughs> the way he does it is like i have to tell you this again <laughs> and she sticks out like a sore fucking thumb but that's that's how she's sort of dealing with it and processing it and one of the things i really respond to is like the conspiracy of it all and I don't mean this in like, you know, they're, they are eventually very much aware of every move that she makes, but how sort of unaware she is of all of it and everything that's going around her. A lot of the, the plot really, it doesn't happen on screen. There are secret police, secret agents. It's all sort of happening around her. That's not to say she's sort of going through it unaware because no. she's actually got a leg up on Daniel, who is definitely out of his element. (laughs) Well, and I I think that there's something to be said, like if we buy her story, if we buy her backstory, and it may may be questionable, the novel certainly seems to reinforce that she's telling the truth. But um, in in the context of this film, if we buy her backstory that she's been in in Central America for a while, she's been a journalist. I think it speaks to her sort of present circumstances that, what is a journalist supposed to be? It's supposed to be observant, right? Maybe the journalist does does stick out like a little sore thumb, like a sore thumb in most instances, but they are also expected to sort of be have their eyes open and be hyper aware of everything going on, be sniffing around for a story. So I think it says something about Trisha's circumstances that she's sort of been reduced to the state where her threat meter is dulled by mm-hmm. being being sort of desperate and backed into a corner. She doesn't. She's not using the journalistic instincts that we would assume that she should have. Because the the conspiracies that are sort of orbiting her, the, all the different parties and forces and factions that are keeping an eye on her, she's only vaguely aware of them. She's aware of them at all. So, like the idea that she's kind of getting getting panicked, for lack of a slow motion panic, for lack of a better word, as the parameters of her situation are becoming increasingly clear, as the noose gets a little tighter, as it becomes a lot very clear that she's stuck with this. And I love the symbolism of stuck with an armload of useless currency and unable to get the dollars mm-hmm. she needs to get out. Mm-hmm. As though that circumstance tightens around her, she's maybe lost her edge a little bit, but arguably by the end, she gets it back. <laughs> but is it the way she wanted it or expected it? Or does she even know what to expect or to want? I- to be without is why I really respond to this. And it's not that, you know, trust me, I need stability in my life. I need that. <laughs> but she is living absolutely without it. And, and, that is, and that's part of what draws her and Daniel together, right? Like that, and one, one of the things I love about the relationship is that it's presented as so ambiguous because it it's entirely possible that multiple motives for both her and him are all coexisting at the same time. And the, the, the way that Denis has adapted the story and also the way that the performers are performing it really conveys that sort of heightened ambiguity that, that there may be multiple things swirling in Trisha's brain at the same time. And part of the action of the film, I would argue that the action of the film is not the action of fleeing the country and evading all these guys. It's what's going on in her head as she's trying to sort out how the fuck do I feel think. about this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who am I? And it's, a very, it's a very existential it, film in some ways. Yeah. And it's all on Margaret Crowley's face or and body. <laughs> um, and the, oh, this is a, the, an incredible 
performance. I want I want to get hair, into all the details. The sweaty hair constantly. That, like. The Andy McDowell hair. I was like, when I rewatched it, I watched it with my boyfriend and I turned to him. I said, you recognize that hair, don't you? I didn't know. I think it happened during an episode that I discovered that she was Andy McDowell's daughter. I'm like, it, you had to put her in Central America in the humidity in order for me to be able to tell, but now I can't. Not say. Right, because she doesn't have the Andy McDowell curls in this movie. She's got the, she's got like the frizz, the frizz wave, and it's huge. Anyway, love that you brought up the ambiguity, in particular the ambiguity of the relationship between these two, because in looking at reviews from when this film came out, a lot of critics who I respect read this movie in one way that I, it makes me think that they were looking at their cell phones the entire time <laughs> and that they didn't buy the relationship between the two leads or they didn't have the chemistry. First of all, they have um, <laughs> pretty hot sexual chemistry, but the distance between them is the fucking point. At no point do you fully know what either of them are getting out of the relationship or are wanting out of it because it's one transactional two it's all lust fueled but then it morphs into do i actually care for this person and their well-being or are they just a way for me to get out of this country well and there's a question about ideals too because right. part of part of daniel's whole thing is that he seems to have this very sort of mush-headed, well-intentioned, but maybe a little bit naive and not entirely thought out idea that he's going to help the left-wing government like sort of reclaim its natural. He ostensibly works for an oil corporation. It's not clear if that's a front or if that's genuine or what, but there seems to, he has this belief, or he's at least telling her he has a belief that he can somehow work for the greater good of the people if he stays in country and helps them sort of reclaim their petrochemical wealth or something along those lines. And it's, it's if I'm describing it mushily, it's because I think Daniel sort of describes it mushily. He doesn't really have a clear sense for it, or he's not conveying it very well to Trish. And, and in both the novel and the film, it's not very clear what he's up to. I mean, uh, by the time the uh, Sandinistas had overthrown the government, they were moving towards an agrarian economy system, at least with the land, right? But he seems to be saying in support of that, but also sneakily only concerned about his bottom dollar, bottom line. By the time either the um, CIA comes in and checks him out of his hotel when he's not there and she's already been trying to convince him that some entity, the secret police of uh, Costa Rica, are after him. And I want to talk a little bit about adaptation. I think it's an important part of our discussion for this. But we we had talked about this film earlier, I guess maybe before I had read the novel. So I saw the film first, then went back and read the novel. I think you did the same thing, right? So we had talked about Joel Alwyn and his slight bland inscrutability in the role and mm -hmm. you had mentioned that there was a different actor who was up for the role initially robert pattinson which you know as cinephiles who like cool acting like we're sort of like ooh, we would love to see robert pattinson but having seen the film and read the novel now i feel 100 percent certain that joe allen is the right choice and that's not a slap on him as an actor to say he's a bland actor 
But in terms of the presence that he brings and what he brings baked into the role compared to a Robert Pattinson is really crucial, I think, to why the film works. Although it, it does reinforce for me that the whole thing is a character piece, a character piece about Trish, really. Yes. And I I don't think that he is bland as a performer. I think no. he's, you can tell that this character is um, very good at the bluff. <laughs> if anything, he's savvier. He's savvier in the film than he is in the novel. In the novel, he's a real milksop. Like he just, I don't, I don't understand her attraction less in the novel than I do in the film. Because at least in the film, he has charisma and he, he looks like he looks, right? <laughs> yeah, I can keep these two things separate in my head. I I didn't not finish it because it's a slog of a novel, because it's long, because it's bad. I didn't finish it because I chose to use my crunch time more wisely. I So I sort of understood Dennis Johnson's motives and I'm kind of finished this thing like I'm in the middle of it but as I got into it I thought I'm not really concerned with finishing this because it is sort of I say I can keep them separate in my head but it is sort of breaking some of the spell for me in a way that um I don't like because you saw the film first or just in general? I think so. I think I did it in the wrong fucking order. <laughs> um, and I've seen this movie now three times. So I'm wow. approaching where I can be sort of more objective about keeping the two separated. I don't like having Trisha's inner dialogue. It's really? A, like, I love what Denise is doing with it because she is, it is a feat of adaptation that she's able to adapt sort of ellipses ellipses filled um inner dialogue that she's pretty much functioning alcoholic at least during this time I, I love that they become mysteries on screen and I love what Margaret Qualley's doing it but it became less of a priority as I was going through it I see what you're saying just for me personally I really like the novel I like both the novel and the film mm -hmm. a lot uh, maybe for slightly different reasons because of that slight change in perspective. I mean, I think the fact that the novel is first person and a lot of the prose is about sort of Trish's thought process and mm -hmm. uh, feelings about her sort of self-examination takes up a lot of the, the, the sort of the word count. And I liked that. I like being sort of in, being in the character's headspace to me is like one of the best parts of fiction, right? Well, well I, but, should, I shouldn't say that I don't like that. I should say that I do like that and was enjoying that piece. I didn't, I didn't want it to inform our discussion of it, really, because no. I was starting to approach that as I rewatched the movie in the middle of reading it. Well, what I was going to say is that the thing that the novel has that I liked in the novel, but that I'm glad did not make the translation to film, that Denis pulls back and takes a more neutral observer state. Even though she follows Trish closely, she's taking a slightly more removed viewpoint in the action the the novel is just sopping wet with like self-loathing self-annihilating sensibility mm -hmm. which yeah. you know i love i love a feel-bad novel i liked reading it but <laughs> i don't know how you translate i don't know how Denis in particular would work as a filmmaker trying to bring that sensibility i think she she's doing her own thing here 
that is yeah. not she's not trying to strike the exact tone that Johnson does in the novel. Oh, which not I think at is, all. Is good. Yeah. Yeah. His is a little hard edged. And the character in the novel is really rough. I mean, once you get once you crack open that skull, uh, <laughs> you don't like what you see. Um, I was describing I was describing it to somebody. I said, this is a novel novel of pungent self-loathing. Yeah. <laughs> and she has loathing for everything around her, including the people who surround her. Misanthropic. It's a misanthropic novel. Yeah. That is present in Stars at Noon. And, you know, it's a, a theme in the novel of sort of outsider and how they turn their own insecurities into hatred for the other. Right. So, of course, Claire Denis is interested in colonialism. And this is the first time, really, where she sort of flips it on its head is, let me see what happens when I put the colonizer where they're failing to colonize last helicopter out of Saigon type situation. It, yeah, it's a li- it's a little less pronounced in the film, but it's all still there too. But she makes it more of a mood piece, right? Like Absolutely. one of the things where I see the Denis in this film is the way anytime the film starts sort of indulging in just vibes moments, which is not a bad thing at all. I like okay, now I mm. now I see her in like them going into that basement club and that fuchsia light on that abandoned dance floor and then just sort of moving together. I'm like, okay, this feels like Claire Denis to me now. A lot of the dialogue, most of it is lifted whole hog yeah, from the novel. It's very close. And um, it's not typical Denis. And you wouldn't say there's a typical like Denis prose. Um, and she's adapted uh, other works too. But in this one, it does kind of strike you as odd because, um, you know, it's uh, not flowery, hard, hard boiled. What yeah, are, how would there you is a little bit. Of, there is a little bit of hard, hard boiled. boiled. Yeah. Again, I think the novel is so angsty and this veers a lot closer to sort of cynical, even though it's the same language, something about the delivery or the way that uh, Denise shaped it in the, in yeah. the adaptation and gives it a kind of more like a, a pessimistic cynicism, hard edge to it that feels like mm-hmm. something from... Yeah, hardboiled fiction is exactly right. So lines like your head is smoking or do you know your ass is in a sling? That could, like that. that could be out of like a Raymond Chandler novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Jim Thompson, some, somebody like that. Uh, so it does call attention to itself in that way. But it, it's so thrilling to see Margaret Qualley say those things in the way she interprets those lines. It's a performance I can't believe more people aren't talking about. And that character is, you feel the humidity just looking at her. And I'm talking about physical appearance. You feel that sort of hot, wet blanket of everything strangling her. And her attempts to throw it off with either, you know, sensuality, which she does not hold up for very long. Like she's flirting when they first meet. And she finally gives it up. She's like, you can buy me. I want American dollars. <laughs> you know? But right. But there are those sex scenes in the film that, again, getting back to the ambiguity, would like, this feels a little too intense to be transactional. There's something. Right. Is there? And so I think you as a viewer are meant to question, is there something flowing back and forth here, mm-hmm. literally and figuratively, um, <laughs> in terms of like, 
is there a mutual need, emotional need? Is there is is this just carnality? What am I looking at here? And I think Paul in particular just sells that sense of hunger so well, it starts discombobulating me as a viewer. I start saying, mm-hmm. wait a minute, this isn't transactional for you. This is satisfying something. This is this is getting at something that you need. Mm-hmm. It's That's what I was going to say. It's meeting a, a need you have wherever that need is centered. I'm not really sure. And I'm ha- I've seen it three times. And each time I've come away thinking a different thing um, about what that character needs. And the sex is kind of like dirty and grotty. Like there's mm-hmm. menstrual sex. There's sex in the mm-hmm. back of a car in the jungle, and nasty sex in the back of a car in the jungle, a busted up truck in the back of, in the jungle. And that, that particular sex is so interesting because it's at the point where he's like, are you setting me up? And I want Margaret Qualley to call me baby. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm, I, I'm gay, but she had me. I'm like, maybe I'm not. Maybe it's Margaret Qualley. It, it, it's a performance that reminds me of a lot and not in its details, but with abandon of Jenna Rollins, particularly what Jenna Rollins was up to with John Cassavetes and thinking about, you know, Mabel and women, a woman under the influence <laughs> and love streams. It's just a complete abandon and just like a exposing of the self. And, but this character is interesting because it's like, what if you put that character in a film noir? What if you put Mabel in a film noir? An international espionage drama, basically. Right. But that's the kind of performance that she's giving. And uh, it doesn't seem like anyone's talking about it. She was my number one. On your actress draft? Yeah, of course. I think with all, like, like a lot of stuff that we talk about on this pod, you know, you talking about it and being enthusiastic about it sort of raised my, like, I liked it when I saw it, but talking about it for a few months now with you and, Picking it apart, I think, raised my estimation of it and in her performance in particular, but also as a work of adaptation. Again, having I feel like having gone back to the novel was enlightening because it made me value the film or what the film does more. I'm going to finish it. I swear I'll finish it. <laughs> well, and, and it is interesting novel in the context. I don't know how much Johnson you've read. Absolutely none. So this was me meeting him for the first time and a, a friend of the podcast, Pete Timmerman is a really big fan mm-hmm. and he read it. And I'm, I'm sorry if I'm misquoting you, Pete, if you're listening, hi Pete. He also said, it's not like first rate Johnson, but you're also kind of a fan or a new fan, right? I haven't, I haven't read as much as Pete has like read everything he's written. I haven't read everything. Um, I loved his novel tree of smoke. It's like one of my favorite novels in the 21st right, century. Right. Right. Um, so based on that, I started to go out, I went out and read some other stuff, his train dreams, which is his novel that almost won the Pulitzer. He like was weirdly tied for the year in the year that they didn't give out a Pulitzer, which is right. strange. I recently read his short story collection that kind of catapulted him to real fame, which was, uh, Jesus son sons. And, um, I like that a lot. It, it, so to having, just having that as a reference, this does starts and it does feel a little atypical, although tree hmm. of smoke kind of has a similar it's another what I would call like equatorial pur- equatorial purgatory film. Like it, a lot of it takes place in Vietnam. It's, some, it's it's a both a Vietnam novel and a post post Vietnam novel at the same time because it kind of jumps around in time. But a lot of it is sort of white folks, white expats in the tropics, not doing well and being mm-hmm. hemmed in on all sides, and everybody else kind of being three steps ahead of them, and a lot of existential 
who the heck am I and what do I value and what what am I in my essence kind of questioning. Um, so it kind of has some similar vibes. It was a lot of espionage too, CIA espionage, Viet Cong espionage. Um, so it kind of has some similar mm, threads, but it does, this Stars of Noon does stand out a little bit. Not, partly because it's, I think it's his like only female protagonist in his entire oeuvre. Uh, I might be wrong about that, but I, but it does a first, a man writing a first person novel with a woman protagonist being a guy who normally writes very masculine novels is sort of interesting in and of itself. Um, and Claire Denis, as someone, yes, there's an interview out there where someone asks, why doesn't she make more female-focused films as a female director? And Claire Denis tells them to fuck off or something. <laughs> call me i think it was something somebody trotting director. out the, trotting out that horrid term strong female character and she just kind of threw it back in their faces which i don't even understand that criticism because Denise has lots of female characters and there's been some misogyny claims uh, lobbed against this film in particular um i'm not a woman i can't say that i see them i can get like on the outside where you would interpret that I um, won't comment on the novel, but I will give Claire to need the benefit of the doubt that she knew what she was doing when she chose specifically chose this novel to adapt. Here's the last thing I want to do. You talk just vibes. There are so many things in this that I love for it's just vibes. You mentioned the dance scene. It's like, you know, if it's Claire and there's a dance scene, I don't know. Is it the scene of the year? Is it the scene of all time? <laughs> Maybe. I just watched Beau Travail again, sort of like as pseudo research. Yeah. The greatest ending of all time. <laughs> and it's so good that it continues throughout the credits. She's like maybe one of the greatest dance like dance bops of the, the greatest period. Dances, right. Um, 35 Shots of Rum has one of the greatest dance scenes. This is yeah. a pretty good dance scene where they they go into that abandoned club and they're playing uh I I'm not sure what the song is, but it seems like something you would m- more hear in a bar in Nicaragua, but the DJ. <laughs> And it seems to be diegetic. It's like the DJ cues up the tender stick stars at noon and they dance to the theme song written for the film. I thought that song <laughs> stuck in my head for a bit now. And you know, it wouldn't be a like a year a good like shortcut to romantic melancholy in a European art film is people alone in a deserted, otherwise deserted discotheque. Like that's that right. that's like, a, like almost a trope in Euro art films at this point. Yeah, and there's no bartender. There's no. nobody else. There's just a DJ and a purple light. And it's the moment when, again, there's an intense romanticism. It's not a romance film, but there are moments when an intense romanticism intrudes and it clouds both Trish's judgment and our judgment as viewers and makes us think, is this a romance? Is this a Romeo and Juliet running away hand in hand? Like, mm-hmm. what, what am I watching here? Or is this a horribly cynical, what I'd argue it ends up being by the end, which is a horribly cynical character drama about a woman realizing that I am a whore and I am willing to do what it takes to survive. Yeah. I'm not a romantic. I'm not an idealist. Yeah. I'm a whore and that's okay. (laughs) That's what she says. It's okay to be a whore in Nicaragua in 1984 slash 2022. I mean, she figures out that the only thing that she can really rely on is herself. Um, should she choose to rely on herself? It's such a crazy, ambiguous ending that. And I don't really... read a lot of. I don't read a lot of guilt 
like Quali has a lot of guilt up until the end, but I don't read a lot of guilt in her final moments in terms of like when she fight when his sense of betrayal is not matched by a sense that I get from her that she's feeling bad about this. It's so ambiguous that I'm still not really sure exactly what happens. It, the sequence of events that did happen is what I saw. What happened? I get into to the point of the final final sequence i mean like just everything about it and it's pretty closely lifted from the novel even like the aesthetics of there being this sort of like bombed out school or something like it's this very bunkerish looking spare concrete building and the the consistently can we talk for a minute about benny safety and the consistently like like discombobulating like genial geniality of his performance is just so it's designed to throw both her and us completely off our game I think if he does one more role like this, we can say he is typecast as a quote unquote nice guy who's going to ruin the life of our female (laughs) protagonist. See licorice pizza. But like part of it is also that he wants something from her and therefore he's good. And again, this is goes back to the train, the idea of transactional relationships. He could have, you know, just had a death squad take them both out to the jungle and shoot them, which they almost, almost happens to them at one point. But like, he wants this transaction almost as bad as she does. He wants that signature on the paper. One thing Denise seems to glean from the novel very and hone in on, at least I'm picking up on this, is the idea of the things that really trap us and bind us and also give us power have very little to do with the physical forces. So like, Mm -hmm. yes, Trace is being hunted down by, men with guns who might physically threaten her who might bomb her car but it's interesting how much emphasis the film puts on currency like what's keeping trish in this country at all to begin with it's not really the threat of the military or anything like that it's that she doesn't have money she has currency in form a that she, she has the wrong form. money right like the the weirdness of that the idea that what secures trish's liberation is not physically handing over Daniel to the CIA, it's a signature. That's all, like everything comes down to her signature that really, that guy's been sort of flapping that document around since the first time he meets her. It's like, I just need your signature on something. I just need your, I just mm-hmm. need your statement. And the idea that that's what secures her liberation. That's the price. That's the, that's the pearl of great price that they want from her is her affirmation on this document. And that she seems to be the only one aware that that's it. Because at the end, she gets her passport back. Yeah. But the idea of that, that that's intriguing to me, the idea. And again, it sort of enhances the purgatorial atmosphere. The idea of that intangibles are what are keeping her shackled. And intangibles is what, event, an intangible thing is eventually what secures her release from the situation. In the same way that, weirdly, that, not to put a final point, but in the same way that, weirdly, that sex is an intangible, right? Like, it's a physical act, but it's not something you give away and lose. It's something you can give over and over again. Sex is physical, but it's also abstracted in the same way that signature is a physical thing, but also abstracted. It has a power that goes beyond its identity as an object. This is this is a, this film is we could go on for a while with this film. Yeah, I think everyone should check it out just to just to give it the air that it fucking deserves. And um, all right, well, it's on Hulu. View it there. All right, so this morning, 
well, as of this recording this morning, the Oscar nominations came out. This is for the 2023 95th Annual Academy Awards, Sunday, March 12th. AKA anyway. the Day of Cinephile Disappointment. <laughs> A day of disappointment, always. But we're not going to be negative today, right? We're well, going to be positive. Yeah, we're going to focus on, we don't want to like focus on the quote unquote snub or focus on. I hate snub. I hate talking. I hate talking about snubs. I, me too. Me too. Because, But then you also sort of get invested when you're like, wait, so you nominate EO. So you know what a good movie is. Where the fuck is decision to leave? Anyway. Yeah. So what we're going to do (laughs) as a way of talking about the nominations, we've picked three Three. things that we are happy were recognized today. And then we'll see what happens on March 12th. And then I can't believe that I'm going to have to watch fucking All Quiet on the Western Front to do my, my annual best picture ranking. I don't know. Now that it's the take up, maybe I'll say I'm I'm leaving that behind. I don't know. I've 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 kind of mixed feelings about that one. Um, I love the original, or I should say that maybe the two adaptations ago. Not not the first. I think there was actually one even before the what the famous. The, yeah, one. yeah, there was a silent one, right? Yeah. Yeah, but so many people are saying that it it really works. It really sings. So maybe I'll mm. give it a shot. Um, yeah, I'm going to check it out. It's one of the few bigger films that I haven't seen. It's the only Best Picture nomination. Oh my God, only Best Picture nominee that I haven't seen. All right, Andrew, you get to pick first. Okay. Are we going with like surprises? Like things we didn't think would be nominated? No. Or more just things we're happy to see? Things you're happy to see. I'm going to go with Paul Meskel for After Sun, which I don't think was a lock, right? Like, no, no, not at all. Like he's popped up in smaller awards and critics recognitions, but I don't think he anybody really thought he had Oscar no. steam. Especially because he's such a newcomer. Like newcomers have a harder time, right? And a lot of folks, it didn't seem like uh, many people had seen it and it was sort of a critical favorite. Um, but it was a surprise to see it pop up there. And I think it's a, a good surprise because it's not the type of performance that is usually in an Oscar nominee lineup. I'm, again, maybe a slightly agnostic on the Oscar process, but I gather that sometimes the acting members of the Academy, people who are in the acting branch, can drive some unusual choices. So I think, like, I'm always grateful when films... I don't think Afterson got any other nominations. No, um, that's the one. So, like, that's what I'm clinging to. But um, one of my favorite films of 2022. And and just a a riveting performance from a relative newcomer. He's known for some British, has some British television under his belt. Um, But I think, like, this is sort of the the thing that's going to make him uh, an A-list actor in the States. But just an incredible performance. And I'm so so grateful to see him getting that kind of laurels. A young guy who took... A big meaty role, but in a tiny film from a first-time director and going from there to the Oscars is pretty pretty awesome for him. It's great because it means people will see this movie now. People who it wasn't on their radar, they maybe would have never heard of it, are now going to go and see it. Big year. He's Irish too. So big year for Ireland because so many Banshees uh, participants. There are so many Banshees. (laughs) There's a Banshee in every acting, all four of the acting categories, which is kind of cool. So, okay, the one you were about to steal is a film that I have not even seen yet. 
And this is why I'm so happy. It exposes the machine of it all and the politicking of it all and how you can very easily, if you're powerful, throw a wrench into what is perceived of how this thing works. I'm a fan of the Oscars as sport. I think ultimately they mean, artistically, they mean very little to me. I don't yeah. really give a shit. Yeah. As a sport, I am very much there all the time. So Andrea Riseborough getting a nomination because of what she's done in the last seven days. Incredible. I mean, it is a, it is kind of interesting from the perspective of these massive, and we're critics, so we sort of are the intended audience of this, the massive FYC campaigns that these studios and distributors put on when they sort of decide where they're going to throw their weight in. It's like millions, of tens of millions of dollars thrown to try to get, to build momentum all leading up to sort of this moment to the Oscars nominations being announced. And in the face of that, we have what? Like word of mouth between Andrea and her friends? <laughs> Basically, is that what drove this as far as we can tell? Well, supposedly this was the plan all along was set to let's get high profile people to promote it. Uh, because this is very small. I don't, who the fuck even distributed who Leslie? I knew about this film because I listened to, to WTF with Mark Marin. Mark Marin plays a role in it. So he's been talking about it for about a year now. I'm going to watch it because I am curious. I do like her as an actress. You know, to your point, I hope it doesn't, <laughs> you know, signal that that's the way we can do all of this. Are we because... influence? We're going to do influencers to buy Oscar votes now? It's basically. What yeah. So nominations I, I mean, I do kind of like that it exposed a, a little bit of how the system works to the very people who, who support it. I saw somebody on Twitter this morning describe her as a newcomer, I guess, because they had never heard of her. And I'm like, <laughs> like, say what you want about who was who was snubbed or who wasn't snubbed. Do not call Andrea Sparrow a, a newcomer. She is she has paid her dues and she deserves her flowers no matter what. So yeah. And we'll say this nomination is also like. Because she has powerful friends that tells you she's been around for a while and been giving really great performances. Anyway, what's your next one? I'm going to go with one that's probably not surprising for me, but I was really surprised to see it, which is Stephanie Hsu for Everything Everywhere. Um, oh, which, yeah. like, Everything Everywhere has sort of been the steamroller Everywhere. that's to be stopped. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I'm happy about because I love the film. It's my, one of my favorite films of the last year. But... Yeah. She was the character, she was like the person when I saw it who were like, you have to do something extraordinary for me to, my eye to gravitate from Michelle Yeoh to you <laughs> when you're on screen. And the supporting category is really something that usually it's, you know, it's the character actor arena, right? It's the sure. three scene wonders, that kind of thing. And she's so, even though it's a supporting performance, in my mind, the identity of that film is so much wrapped around her performance, which is really a dual performance as she's doing as Joy and Jobu, really kind of like two different characters. That identity is so wrapped in my mind with the identity of the film. Um, I'm really, I think it's, and again, she was maybe like the one who wasn't, didn't, I thought didn't have a shot of getting nominated. Yeah, it was sort of everyone thought Jamie Lee would get in because it, there's a big narrative behind that. As it turns out, people, Fucking love this movie, just as we thought. 
So the people who are seeing it are like, yeah. yeah but Cur- Curtis is like a legacy nomination, if we're being honest, it's right? It's not a great performance. If anyone I if like her, looking at like it's fine. She's not a great actress. You know. It's a here, here's a nomination for your body of yeah. work kind of. And thing. she's fun in it. But yeah. she's fine. Sort of like with uh Paul Mescal, like I love seeing young, not unknown, like not untested. She's Stephanie, she's from Broadway. She's like done a lot of stuff, but young, relatively unknown on sort of the A-list level. I mean, to, to sort of be in a slate with people like Jamie Lee Curtis is, is sort of extraordinary. So I love seeing young actors sort of get that brass ring. I agree. What's your number two? My next one is... <laughs> Why are you laughing? What is this? Because why am I like torpedoing this thing <laughs> by picking the craziest things? I'm being a really crazy person today. I'm picking Ice Merchants from Short Film Animated. Oh, this is a person. This is a personal one. <laughs> I'm so happy to see it there because this was uh, Sliff's narrative short. Not even it won the big prize winner of, uh, of our 2022 fest. So I was really happy. I did programming and so do you with Cinema St. Louis. I was really happy that Ice Merchants, but it was always sort of clear to me that this was a great little film, any form that it takes uh, or any sort of program you put it in. Ice Merchants, yeah, great French animated film, French uh, Portuguese co-production about a father and a son who live on top of a uh, an ice covered mountain and they mine ice and sell ice. And it has this great little action kind of melancholy narrative to it that I thought was really beautiful. It's so gorgeous. Visual style, like that to me, like animated short is has been slowly sort of been taken over by the Pixar sensibility. So like the the things that feel visually aesthetically special in animated short are always sort of the ones that draw my eye. And this one, I think we like our shorts jury was sort of like unanimous about this film, right? Mm-hmm. This, this was like a favorite. Yep. Yep. And me picking this is as an, a like apology to myself for not picking two other nominated short films. And I won't say their names or slip that I watched <laughs> that ended up nominated. Whoops. Whoops. Whatever. Um, okay, what's what's your final pick? I'm going to go with Polly's nomination for adapted screenplay for adapting uh, Miriam Toe's novel Women Talking for her film. It got a best pick, weirdly strange set of nominations. It got a best picture nom and an adapted screenplay nom. Admittedly, it's a hard film to, for the acting category because the ensemble is so big and the roles are so balanced. I'm not even sure they knew, they who, to, they knew who to campaign submitted for. Submitted everyone as supporting. Yeah, so that's a weird. Yeah, that's so always a weird place to be. But Polly missing director and is it hurts a little bit. Um, but I just loved seeing this particular nomination because I feel like one of the things I really love about Women Talking is that it's a great feat of adaptation. When you read it, it does not read as an obvious film. It reads like this could be a play, a one act play maybe. Mm-hmm. So to me, the, the sort of the miracle of the movie and the the, the magic of it is that. Polly sort of turns it into this debate and discussion as action sequence, as, as, as like propulsive drama on the same level, not, not in the same level as like a, not like a courtroom drama, but almost like an action sequence where we're sort of going round and round and round in this circle of women having a discussion about what the heck they're going to do. And so to me, 
that's sort of what I zeroed in on first. I, I was sort of primed to like the film already because I really like the novel and I like Polly as a filmmaker, but that's sort of the thing I zeroed in on. So if there's going to be one Oscar that it nominated for, I'm really glad that um, Adapted Screenplay is one of them because it, it's a very well-deserved feat of adaptation, which I don't think is always an easy thing. People assume, I guess people assume like, oh, the novel's already written. You don't have to do any work, right? Like, I, I think we've proved this episode it's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not a screenwriter, but like, I feel like it's obvious when a lot of care and craft goes into that translation process. What is your final choice? Is Miss Harris goes to Paris. <laughs> is this for costumes or production design? I forget. Costume, even costume. though I think production design, pretty good one. That's Jenny Bevan. We've talked about her before. I think that was Kayla. Kayla like went off about Cruella, and she ended up winning last year for Cruella. But I, you know, you're always kind of gonna get me when you set a film, you know, mid-century, and <laughs> it's about costumes and like this is a Phantom Thread nomination, right? Another Leslie, Ma- yeah, Leslie Manville yeah, again, right? Leslie Man- oh, mid-century couture, yeah. I mean, it, that that's it's kind, it's almost a gimme, but when yeah. you, when it's facing against maybe like more eye popping stuff like like Black Wakanda Panther, Forever, yes, yeah, yeah. And I also love the nomination for everything, everywhere, all at once because that's just like Stephanie Shu's costuming alone is pretty like right. wild, just absolutely insane. But Mrs. Harris goes to Paris is it, I'm just happy to see that title come up. It's a film that I found really endearing and sort of lovely to be in, and thought, oh, it's kind of forgettable. But I think about it a lot, and I think about Leslie Manville in it. I'm just happy to see it anywhere, even though the place where it was likely to show up is where it showed up in costume (laughs) design because it is fucking about clothes. (laughs) Anything else you wanted to just mention? I know um, Top Gun Maverick screenplay. A lot of people are making fun of that, but here's my defense of that. As somebody who liked not loved Top Gun Maverick, my defense of that is that we very rarely get such precision engineered blockbuster films that particularly in the, in our current age, when we have these giant shared universes and things are kind of all over the face and movies are setting up TV series that haven't, that aren't going to air for another year and all this. The, I was, I was sort of struck by the precision of the structure of it. Yeah. You could argue it's a little screenwriting, screenwriting 101, but like the idea of, okay, we will spend some time showing you what the mission is going to be. We'll what run it several do. times. Then we'll do it. Put you in we'll it. Have it. We'll have it go off the rails at the end just a little bit and then show you the aftermath of that. Like, we'll tell you what we're going to show you and then we'll show you. So there's, and particularly in an action film about planes flying through the air, it's so important to have a clarity about what's trying to be achieved here, what's going on. I agree. I love the clarity. I love the simplicity. I hate the details very much <laughs> the dial the dialogue yeah and this like nostal- nostalgia tugging like bullshit like i don't it doesn't make sense i don't care and also it's just like pro-war propaganda which is interesting <laughs> to see it nominated uh with all quiet on the western front that's gotta be it that's gotta be it Interesting taper. I, I was struck, but I was struck by how much it's a movie about Tom Cruise preparing us for his inevitable death, probably on camera. <laughs> like so many people were like, it's a rah-rah movie. I'm like, 
I don't I don't view this as a rah-rah movie. I believe this is Tom Cruise making his old man start making his really his first old man film. Well, I can't wait to see what that old man does, <laughs> like hanging from a I don't know. We got we got two more mission impossible. Yeah. So it's gonna be great. <laughs> um, I was excited about EO getting a nomination for international feature. I don't think that was a foregone conclusion at all. I don't think it was strong year. And um, yeah, it's it's it, and it's done really well at the box office um for what it is <laughs> pete was saying that it like performed incredibly well with webster he had two weekends of it i i like seeing Nov- novel me uh grab a documentary nod that's a film i liked a lot which is not it's not a film that i think necessarily is well disposed to being an oscar baby documentary particularly when you look at like the things that have won best documentary feature in the last say five years it didn't necessarily jump out to me as an obvious contender even though i liked it a lot and of course i love that all the beauty and the bloodshed is there and that one's been that one's been riding a, a real wave of like that and all that breathes yeah, yeah. a lot of awards uh momentum behind those two in particular my favorite thing of these nominations is when riz ahmed reads my year of dicks <laughs> and and then People were like tentative about laughing about it. <laughs> and they're like, oh, wait, no, I think we can just laugh about it. And then he says, an ostrich told me the world is fake and I think I believe it. <laughs> I also I also appreciate how carefully they both prepared to say everybody's names exactly. <laughs> well, there was no miss, there was no mangling of names in their I miss the days of Dick Pope. Dick Pope. Dick Pope for Mr. Turner. That is the only reason I know who Cheryl Boone Isaacs is. <laughs> All right. The Oscars, March 12th. I know Andrew's going <laughs> to DVR it so he can watch it many times. I, you, you are where I was about 10 or 15 years ago. I used to have the big Oscar parties and get all excited about it and have themed drinks and everything. But uh, I've become a crotchety old man who doesn't care about awards anymore. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> You'll get there. Yeah. All right, we've got one more thing. I think the last time we recorded an episode where we did one more thing, I talked about going to Paris. Mr. Joshua went to Paris. And I talked about all the different um, things I was planning. Let me tell you, cinephile in Paris, you want to be able to experience it for the first time. You want to go to the Louvre. You want to maybe just walk by the Eiffel Tower because you're afraid of heights and you refuse to go into it. But then you Google showtimes in Paris. <laughs> this, this is a pilgrimage, right? Pet cinephile it, it was a pilgrimage. And one of my favorite parts of this pil- pilgrimage was forcing my, or, or suggesting my French boyfriend's parents who do not speak English one of whom is a cinephile and runs like a a film society. The other is not a movie person. And then his sister on Christmas waiting to decide if I should take them to see Tio Roma, the Pier Paolo Pasolini film where Terrence Stamp plays this sort of devil character who invades a family and sleeps with all of them. I thought, hmm, that's a little too weird because <laughs> I'm a stranger invading here. Or Brian De Palma's 1980 masterpiece, Thrust to Kill. 
which is somehow the less weird option. <laughs> that shit started. And I had warned them and, and was assured that no, they're, you know, that's a cool, like, they're not going to make it awkward or anything. But I kind of forgot, like, even though it's one of my favorite movies, like, how fucked up it is. <laughs> and that's part of the point. Angie Jick- Dickin- Dickinson, because she's jerking off in the shower. Angie Jerkinson in the first scene. And I'm like, oh, God. I really hope they like me because I have done this to them on Christmas. So I went up to his mother after and I said, well, what, what did you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down. She said, um, how do you say, um, Keech? <laughs> De Palma wouldn't disagree. No, I, I think it served its purpose well. Um, so that was my one more thing is, you know, meet the parents, but just, just really fucking meet them. <laughs> Tell them who you are. With straight razors and cross-dressing apparently yeah yeah and uh yeah so that's me i'm joshua ray you can find me reviews at the take up and on kmov and you can find me across social media at crispy retinas and what about you andrew did you take your in-laws to see a dirty movie on christmas (laughs) no um i did what every self-respecting cinephile does nowadays on christmas eve which is watch uh, ice white chuck but um (laughs) right uh, my one more thing, I guess like like pretty much everybody who's in sort of the January rut of no no new things to watch, um, I've started watching uh, HBO's new adaptation of The Last of Us, uh, starring Pedro Pascal and Catherine called Birdie star, Bella Ramsey, who you like a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's an interesting experience. I don't want to go into details. This is a zombie apocalypse show, but sort of elevated zombie apocalypse, if we can use such an interminable term. The really interesting part about it for me. So this film, this is a show that's being adapted from a hit video game, probably one of the biggest video game hits of all time. The interesting part about it is it's a sort of co-creation of Craig Marzen of Chernobyl fame, creator of one of the most sort of critically well-regarded limited series of the 21st century. And then Neil Druckmann, who is the director and narrative lead for the game, the original game. So it's it is an interesting case where the person who created it in its original form is adapting it to episodic television. And it is like heavily involved in that. Druckmann is creating it. He's directing a couple episodes. He's writing a couple episodes. He's heavily involved in it alongside Marzen. So I'm watching it with my wife who has never played a second of the video game and knows nothing about it other than zombie apocalypse and a, a, a dude who's taken a little girl across the country in sort of a road movie. Um, that's all she knows so it's really fascinating to sort of watch it side by side with somebody somebody who has played I played The Last of Us through like five or six times beginning to end it's it's a relatively short game Um, and watching it with somebody who has never played a minute of it is a really interesting we were talking about adaptations earlier in about in discussion stars at noon and women talking so I, I really am enjoying it just from that perspective I'm trying I'm actually sort of not critically analyzing it that much as a work of fiction because I'm really interested in like how it's landing for different audiences. I'll tell you how it's landing. I walked in on my boyfriend watching it and he said, do you want to watch this with me? And I said, no, thank you. Too sad. Can't do it. <laughs> it I'm a bleak freaking story. Half, halfway through the first episode. I'm sorry. He can probably hear me exposing him right now. Fucking bawling. I'm like, yeah, I told you. I'm not doing it. <laughs> It is a bleak show. It is, it is intense. Yeah. It's very, it's very character driven for a, a zombie apocalypse show. So it's, what if the walking dead, but good. Is how I describe <laughs> it to people. 
that's unfair. I did I did like Walking Dead in the hey, in the heyday. That's not unfair. Yeah. But it's it's just sort of a fun. It's been a fun experience. We're only two episodes in. Um, I've heard from critics who have seen sort of the whole series. Um, that, that it really holds up. It just keeps getting better and better. So we'll see. Uh, the latest sort of Sunday night appointment television from HBO. Hurrah. Very good. Um, you can find me at on Twitter at Arachnophiliac, on Letterboxd at AY76. And all my work will now be at the take-up going forward. Where you can find all of us. On our next episode, we're going to have a very special guest. We have film critic Jessica Scott joining us for Andrew's pick of you won't be alone. Uh, I in my head, it's you will never be alone because it's that you will never walk alone. Like I'll never get it. It's going to be a whole scary of the sixty first situation and the stars at noon situation. So prepare yourself for Macedonian folk horror as a Terrence Malick movie, basically. <laughs> like I've never been more prepared. I haven't watched it, and I'm ready to go. So there are witches, there are witches, there are but there's body swapping. It's a grand old time. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, until next time, 